Jonathan. Well, good morning. I'm glad you all are here. I figured I'd freak people out if I stood up during the prayer for transition jobs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I realized uh, last week we had a partner, like a member meeting, and uh, some of the ways I phrased things implied like I wasn't coming back. And so uh, I just want to clarify. Um, this will be my last Sunday, uh, and uh, then we'll be off. And um, But uh, the message today won't be like a going away message. We will finish up our series where we have talked about um, really what, what, what Jesus and, and Paul define the church as. Uh, the, as we've moved into this building, uh, something we've waited for for months and months and months, we also want to drive home that... Um, that the church itself is not the building. And we wanted to make sure to sort of take that pause, that sort of reset and calibration to go, look, this is amazing. I'm glad we have an amazing place to meet and amazing place for our kids, everything else. But who we are is ultimately what, what, what God says about us. And, um, and we look through the four, four of the more major metaphors for the church, uh, which is like bride, the, the temple, uh, the family. And today we'll talk about uh, the body. And uh, most of us know the, the Greek god Asclepius, well known to all of us, right? Um, there is a symbol that's probably much more well known, it's this symbol. And uh, we might have talked about this before in the past, Asclepius' symbol is this, it's related to the medical community, health. Um, he was the god of healing in uh, the Greek world and for whatever reason in the Western world, we've adopted uh, his symbol of the staff and the snake as our symbol for healing. If you ever wondered and saw, why does an ambulance have a snake around a pole as a sign of healthcare? Uh, now you know why. And so uh, that Greek god was significant all over the, the Greek and Roman world, uh, but particularly in a place like Corinth. And you would find Asclepions, which is sort of his temple, his place. They would uh, be thought of almost like a hospital, just with uh, now, not modern medicine, um, a lot of kind of wishful thinking and um, various natural remedies. And uh, what was commonplace was that people either hoping to get a certain body part healed or after maybe healing had happened, they would make casts of those body parts. And so if you wanted, uh, so like these are some of the, the pictures that people have found in, in sites. So if you wanted a foot healed or if you wanted an ear healed or a hand or whatever uh, body part that you wanted healed or less um, body parts maybe we won't mention on a Sunday, like whatever parts you wanted healed, you would make a cast for that. Or if your body had healed itself or whatever had happened, you might celebrate and say, Sclepion had healed me. And so in certain cities, um, Corinth being one of those, they have found thousands, thousands of these things, all of them. And uh, Corinth was thought of that there was um, a particular connection to Asclepius in this city. And so when Paul is interacting with the city, writing a letter, trying to explain the nature of the church in a city that... Um, if he had been, I mean, when he was a missionary in, probably walked along and saw all these body parts, saw all this obsession with the body, it would make sense for him to go, okay, let's talk about the body. <laughs> you guys seem obsessed with the body. Let's talk about the body. And it's within this letter to Corinth that Paul sort of unpacks this metaphor for us. 
And it always requires a little bit of backstory and all these metaphors. Like if we're going to talk about the temple of the church as a temple, well, it required us to, to kind of do some background work of exactly how particularly Jews, but also Greeks and Romans would have understood the idea of temple. What does a temple represent? Or bride and, and making sure we understand um, some, of the, some of the ancient practices of, of what it looks like uh, for marriage or uh, a family and making sure that particularly in, um, in a, a high relational, high familial society with, with a high value on family, what does it look like to um, redefine family by something other than blood? And so this week uh, is similar. And for us to remember uh, some of these backgrounds, so to remember a little bit uh, as we kind of walk through this text, what was going on in Corinth, that there was already that. But not only that, one of the things that is super common in Corinth is that they were a particularly Roman city for a Greek city. Um, they were heavily influenced by Roman culture. Uh, they were a bit of a Roman resettlement place, so uh, they had plenty of Romans show up and influence their city. And if you understand Roman society, it was extremely stratified. Uh, you can almost think of like caste systems uh, in places like India. And uh, you had a ranking, and I understand the text is a little small for some of y'all. Um, you had a ranking uh, on where you were in society uh, based upon really all of these categories. At the top were wealthy Roman freemen or free women, like those that were born free. And there were different classes even of that. There were equestrians, there were uh, the, the decurions, um, and then wealthy but ordinary Romans. They weren't part of a, a very particular class, but they were still part of the wealthy, uh, free class of Romans. Just below that, uh, you have folks like um, those who served in uh, the imperial court, so like Caesar's court, um, but had earned their freedom. They had a particular status because of their association with the Caesar uh, above others. Um, and then there were the poor classes of Rome. So poor uh, freeborn Romans, but also sort of poor uh, those who had been slaves but are now freed Romans. And so you had this whole collection of at least this, this Roman system of things of which um, uh, um, you, you had plenty of stratification of these different groups. And then you moved to the non-Romans and Rome was no different than places like uh, America where you have those who are American citizens and those who aren't and we live together and we interact. And so uh, Rome certainly had that, those who were not born um, or had earned Roman citizenship. And in that, you also had the wealthy at the top. So if you were a wealthy um, Asia Minor resident who'd moved into a Roman world, then you would have a status because of your wealth and significance. Um, and then freeborns uh, who are non-Romans. And then you have the collection of the, the slave or servant classes. The imperial, so those who work for Caesar and the government, households, and then farm slaves, and then those who work in mines and galleys are at the bottom of the list. Extremely stratified, extremely designated by status, wealth, and things like that. And so you knew your place, you knew your class, you didn't leave it. And not only that, but so much of the social life was tied into this. So if you were an equestrian, you were the kind of top of the class, and you want to have a, a dipon, this party uh, for um, this feast, it would often be to celebrate your status. Actually, a lot of the homes were designed for social events, uh, at least amongst the wealthy. 
Uh, they would have different rooms that would designate different classes in the building. They would have different rooms for entertaining. And so if you were the equestrian, you would be at the top of the list. Um, and you would sit in this sort of inner room within the household. And you would surround yourself with like eight or ten other equestrians or uh, decurions, those who are on the upper class and status with you. You didn't want to be seen with anybody in the lower class. And so you surrounded yourself with those with the same status that you would have. Now, the party would spill out into the larger court courtroom uh, within the house. There was a larger space uh, that uh, the next tier of people. So if you were a Roman freedman who was attending the party, but you are not part of the wealthy upper class, this would be the commonplace for you. And, and, and so um, this was kind of the larger gathering space within the church or within the church, within the, the party house. Now, there was another room that would often be sort of like servants' rooms uh, within uh, the, the building. And so if you were a non-Roman, um, but not quite in the, in the class of slaves or servants, this would be sort of your party room, your space uh, to enjoy the party in. And then lastly would be sort of the slave class that would often be left outside. They would be waiting for crumbs or anything left over from the party, bones, anything uh, to partake in. And so even the food was stratified. So if you wanted the good steaks, you were part of the equestrian class. If you wanted uh, maybe fruits and vegetables, you were sort of in that middle courtroom. And then everything else was sort of scraps and leftovers. And so it was extremely stratified. 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 And you can imagine... A society that is so based upon this, with so many different levels and so many different classifications, and you don't cross those lines, and you, you, it's who you know and who you're associated with, and then the gospel comes. And someone like Paul comes in, and he says things like, in Jesus, there's not slave or free. There's not poor or rich. There's not Jew or Greek, barbarian, Scythian, man, woman. I mean, it's revolutionary what Paul comes in and will speak to these people saying there's a new king and a new kingdom it's not Caesar and it's not Rome it's upside down from that and Rome will tell you you're all divided and you're all separated and you stay in your lane and you do your thing but in Christ we have something different and Paul will write to places like Colossae and to Corinth to point all this out and he'll drive it home and he'll be like, brothers and sisters, like we can't distinguish by class. We are all one now. You're not more important because you're in question. You're not less important because uh, you are a released slave. You're not unimportant because you're currently serving as a slave or servant. And we are the presence of God in Corinth. And so because of that, we have to show them the truth about God's kingdom what God's kingdom is actually like. And so Paul will write this letter to a church that is struggling with divisions. It's, it's the whole letter. Like the whole letter is Paul's like, you are divided over so many things, right? He does it from the get-go. Hey, some of you are saying you follow Apollos, and some of you are like, well, Paul baptized me, and some of you are like, Cephas is our guy, who's Peter. And Paul's like, don't be divided over that. Who are we? Like God makes the, the vine grow, well, you can't even have consensus over marriage, and they're all struggling with debating of like even stuff that the Gentiles are like, that's an abomination. Like they're arguing over it within the church. Paul's like, I hear these lawsuits going on here in church. He's almost like, please, like he almost has a sarcastic tone. 
please tell me I'm wrong. I don't even believe it. That you guys are taking each other to court. Like the Gentiles do that. Like if you guys are suing each other for all sorts of things, you're acting just like all your neighbors who don't know the Lord, who don't live in the kingdom of God. And so quit taking everybody to court all the time. Like you're acting just like everybody else. Or some of you think your gift that the Holy Spirit gave is better than other people's gifts and, and you're being divided over that as if one is higher status and this gifting is a lower status and all those sort of things. Arguing over worship and the, the nature of it. And those who come in curious about who God is, like they're going to be so confused over you guys like doing all sorts of craziness in worship. It's the whole book. Like the whole book is, is just this breakdown of a church that is struggling and being divided and Paul's encouragement to them it's like how are we going to communicate the shalom of God the God who reconciles and restores us not only to him but to each other if we are so divided right now if things are so broken how's this going to work and that's the context of which Paul sort of inserts this brilliant metaphor that he will use in other letters, but he particularly speaks about it in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 12. So we'll jump there. If you have your Bibles, feel free to come follow along. We will have them on the screens as well. All right. We'll start at verse 12. For just as the body is one, uh, this will be a long reading, but we'll unpack it. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave and free. Catch what he's doing there. All were made to drink of one spirit. But the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot shall say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less than part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Or in the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again, um, the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem um, to be weaker are indispensable. And on the parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. Our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Um, which are more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. And there may be no division in the body, uh, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffered, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, fourth miracles, then gift of healing, healing uh, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do they all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And then Paul moves into a whole thing about marriage ceremonies. If you know your Bibles, you know the very next section is a whole diatribe on love, uh, which is in the context of the gifts of the church. So I, I'm not against reading it at weddings, but that's not what that passage is about. Um, just, just so you know. Uh, but Paul moves into this profound statement about the church. Where he ultimately says, like, look, you, you, collection of believers in Corinth, 
you are the body of Christ. Like you are, Christ was a body, still is a body, he's fully human, fully God, died, went to heaven. Christ's body now on earth is you, which is profound. Now hear me, the church doesn't seem that way. Church doesn't always look that way. Church has her own scars and blemishes, has a long history of not always reflecting Christ. But what Paul says to us is that that is who we are, though. We are Christ's body, representation here on earth with him as the head of it. And not only that, but what Paul drives home to start this letter or to start this section is just how one we are. Before he gets into any conversation around all the different parts, in the first uh, three verses, six times he uses the word one. You are one. One spirit. There's one body. There's one Christ. You are one. Yes, the body has many members, but you are one body. We're not many bodies, but one. And we share in the same life, tied to the same head, and we function to express Jesus to the world. If people encounter us, it should be like they are encountering Jesus himself. And Paul reminded them, the thing that draws them together is the spirit of God itself. The very thing that's going to cause them problems for the next three chapters is all the giftings of the spirit and all the way the spirit's working in different people's lives in different ways. And Paul's like, that same spirit is the thing that should be drawing you guys all together as one. Every true believer in Christ is a member of the body and the church is one because Christ is one. We can no more separate Christ from his church than we can the head from the body. It doesn't work. I mean, it works in Futurama and other cartoons, but it doesn't work in reality. That just dated myself by mentioning Futurama. <laughs> okay, good. That is what the church is. It's not a group of just religious people gathered together to enjoy some mutually desired functions. And too often the church is that, but it's a group of people who share the same life who belong to the same Lord, who are filled with the same spirit and given gifts, yes, distinctly, but from the same spirit and who are intended to function together to change the world by the power of God working through us. That's what the church is. And so Paul first speaks to the unity, but all the metaphors we've talked about speak to unity. Let's talk about the many members. Um, I'm a bit of a sports person. Uh, I don't tend to do a lot of sports metaphors here because I know not everybody is, but this is where sports metaphors really work. Uh, and so um, think of this uh, in maybe Atlanta United, um, especially if they're playing better than they have been lately. Um, and on a soccer team, you've got 11 players on a field. And all those 11 players have different roles and different functions, different parts to play. Yet they all have the same goal, right? Like. The defenders and the strikers have the same goal, to win the game, right? It's a shared goal for the team. Now, some are more well-known than others, like Joseph Martinez, face of the franchise for the most part. He has a different role. Everybody knows, I mean, if you follow Atlanta United or soccer in general, like everybody knows who he is. He's, he's the face of the franchise. He's the one scoring goals. And so that's what center forwards do. Or Brad Guzan, who's, when he's not injured, is the goalie for the team, and he's pretty, pretty recognized as well. But did you know their two jobs, goalie and, and 
center forward, touched the ball the least of everybody on the team. They're the most famous, but they touched the ball the least. <laughs> and then you have places uh, like fullbacks who touched the ball the most during the game who are kind of forgotten <laughs> in some ways. They're kind of looked over. They're not as important. They're not always as well paid. They don't get the goals. They're less known. Mostly people notice them when they screw up more than when they get things right. It's just part of the game. Unremarkable, but essential. And I think Paul's metaphor here is, is similar. And what he's driving at is saying, hey, you are all one team. You're all one thing with one, the same goal together to be more like Christ in the process. Like that is your goal. But to be an excellent team, everybody has a, has a part in this. Like for the team to win, everybody's got to do what they do. And someone like Joseph Martinez can't score goals if the midfield's not doing his job. And someone like Brad Guzan can't do his job if the defenders aren't also doing their jobs. It's just part of it. It's like we are all a giant unit together. And the same is true in the church. And for whatever reason, we've um, played up certain roles. Now, I understand, like me standing here and teaching, it's a higher profile role. But in the same way, like Joseph Martinez can't do his job without great midfielders. Like, I, I can't do my job unless the rest of the church is doing what it's designed to do. <clears throat> and it's not, my job's more glamorous, my job's more um, desirable. It's probably not. <laughs> and, uh, but but what, we, what we do together is what makes maybe sometimes the higher profile worlds also work. And the gifts of administration and the gift of uh, hospitality and the gift of, are just as valuable and just as important to the life of the church as a gift of teaching. <clears throat> and it doesn't always feel that way. And maybe there's ways we've structured the church uh, nowadays that work against that. But I, but I hope you hear that very clearly. And we do not want to glamorize one role above the other as if it's more important. Um, and so we are many members. And as Paul speaks about it, I think it deals with two things. One, I think it deals with insecurity. Uh, verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And so what Paul is driving against are those who would think very little of themselves. There's people that might say, I'm, I'm not that gifted. I may not have something to offer. Maybe I envy other positions and titles because maybe they are more noticeable. Maybe God made a mistake in sort of my gifting. I just don't like, I'm really good at it, but it, it's just, I wish I had something else. Hear me, every person in the body of Christ has something to contribute to the body of Christ. We have a value, one of our three values. One of them is what we say, everybody plays. And we say that, and what's, it's the only sport analogy we have in our values, but uh, everybody plays is about when we have no one sitting on the bench. We are less of a church if you are not utilizing your gifts at this church. It's, it's just, it's essential. You have something to contribute to the life of the church. There's no nobodies here. There's no, I'm sitting on the bench and watching everything happen. That is not what we want out of this church. That's not what we want out of you. It's good for your discipleship and it's good for the whole church for you to utilize whatever gifting and design that God has given you through his spirit. 
And not only does it deal with insecurity, I think it deals with independence. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need for you. People that would say, you know what, I don't, I don't need the community. I'm pretty gifted. If anything, the community is like, lucky to have me, right? That sort of mentality. And there's those that would kind of push away a little bit. It's very self-sufficient. Now hear me, at least in my experience so far in however many years of ministry, 20 years of ministry. Gosh, I'm old. Um, independence from the body is the quickest path to heresy. I see it time and time and time again. Those who are like, ah, self-sufficient. My church is, you know, brunch on a Sunday and I'll listen to a good sermon, kind of do my own thing. It's, it's a quick, quick path to heresy. Like, we need one another to constantly be reminded of the truth of the gospel. It is a very peculiar Western, I'll, I'll just do a quick diatribe on deconstruction right now. Um, one of the phrases that gets used around deconstruction is, is the phrase decolonization. As if, like, what, what the modern church is in America is, is colonized. And hear me, there, there might be plenty of critique to go around of how Western, of how individualistic we are, stuff like that. There's, there's plenty of that. Hear me. And some of that is Western. And sure, if you want to use the word colonized, fine. It is the most Western thing you could possibly do to also go, you know what, I'm going to push away from the table. I'm going to self-identify my own understanding of theology and not do that in community. That is the most colonized version of faith you could possibly do. And an appeal to French deconstructionism to do that. And so when people use that phrase, I'm like, you are, you are trying to, to connect to an ancient faith with a bunch of, of, of Middle Easterners by going the most European Western you could possibly go. And, and so um, we are not designed to pursue faith in a very individualistic vacuum. That the best way that maturity comes through faith is in community together. If you are living as a Christian apart from others, you are reducing your effectiveness, you are reducing your development. The church is plan A, according to scripture. And God didn't give a plan B. He didn't didn't go, you know what, if you don't have a church, a podcast are fine. You'll be all right. That's not the design. But God, we are God's organism. Like we're his body. There's, there's an organism to that. And organism and organization come from the same root. Like we, there's an organization to who we are here on earth. Um, and lastly, I think what Paul is unpacking is that there's a uniqueness that actually comes through our unity. Like we are more in touch with our uniqueness when we work together as a community. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And I said, I think there's a uniqueness that comes to relating to each other. And I've seen this play out. Often people kind of come in uh, to, to churches and have their thing that they are passionate about. Thing that some aspect, usually of some aspect of the gospel, 
some aspect of, of how God is working and doing stuff in the world that they are passionate about. There's people who come in who are passionate about justice issues. Now, the, the other side of that is that they're often, whatever the passion is, they're often frustrated that not everybody shares that same passion. That, that everybody's not as passionate about those things as they are. People who love prayer, who think like prayer is the most important thing the church does altogether, which is amazing, yes. Great. And often, those who, who, who that, that is the thing, get really frustrated that not everybody shares that, that, that passion, that intensity around that very thing. Justice is the most important thing in the church. Reading scripture, studying scripture together is the most important thing about the church. Discipleship is the most important thing about the church. Uh, systematic theology is the most important thing about studying things at the church. Now hear me. Jesus is the most important thing about church. <laughs> but, but that same Jesus has gifted each of you in different ways, with different passions, about what it means to follow him. And if you come here thinking, you know what, Chris doesn't talk about the thing that I'm most passionate about, I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> I am one member of this body and I don't always share that same passion as you do. But God might have brought you here to care about that for the sake of all of us. And we want to create a space where those realities do play themselves out if, if my natural bend is one way, sometimes it's towards evangelism and things like that, and don't, don't hold it against me that I may not share that same passion as you do because that's the reason you're here. Like, I need you to remind me of those things that God also cares about just as much as I want to remind you of the things that I also think that God cares about. And hear me, what's the greatest byproduct of that is you end up with a very well-rounded, holistic church. I don't want a homogenous church. I don't want a church full of just evangelists, though we still do the work of an evangelist. And I don't want a church full of people who only care about social justice, though we should care about justice in our city and how it plays out socially. I don't want a church of just a bunch of systematic nerds. I just, but we should care about good and proper doctrine and theology. It's just part of who the church can and should and often homogenous churches are surprisingly very unhealthy churches. Even if they care about things that are legit and good. But when there are other voices to go, yeah, but this matters too. Then you miss out on so much of what Jesus has for the church. I mean, it even plays out in elders. We, we had this conversation a week or so ago um, with, with Ed, who's enjoying a, a wonderful vacation now. Um, but uh, we were sitting in the meeting, and Ed, Ed who's pretty new to the elder uh, board session, uh, I don't know what the official term is, but Ed, Ed goes, you know what, like, can we talk about like, the discipleship process at the church, what it looks like to, to like, mature believers through stages and stuff like that? He's like, what, what are we doing? I'm like, I don't know. And I do know, but... Um, <laughs> but that, like, that's what Ed is passionate about. And it, and it made me think of um, another pastor of mine who's wired a little bit more like me, and he, he had a similar conversation in the church, uh, in his church. And it's the conversation, and, and I'm going to personalize it to me, um, but somebody commented to him, 
as if, like, Chris, you care more about those who are not yet at Resonate than you do those currently at Resonate. And, and that's okay. God's wired me a bit that way. Like, I am, I am sold out for my neighbors. And I am sold out for some people on the margins. Like, that, that is where I get fired up. Like, if I can get this whole church to mobilize for loving your neighbors and sharing the gospel, great. But Ed's passion and interest is how do we take immature or less mature believers and continue to mature them. And guess what? Ed and I, like, both need to be in that room and to push and, and to say, look, God cares about both those things. <laughs> and that's the best part about being part of this side of the church. That's why we need the body. That's why we need each of you to utilize the gifts that God has given you and to utilize the passions that God has put in you to live out your God-given role. It's often discovered in the context of community. But this whole metaphor of body also comes in this context, and it comes right off of Paul teaching on communion. Paul will talk about communion, and, and communion, and we talk about it every week, but this, this, this constant um, representation connected to Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, that, that through Jesus' death, sin brokenness, all the things, all the rebellion against God, whatever we have in us is ultimately dealt with. That by faith, our sin is removed and we become the righteousness of God. And it took Jesus' death to do that. That's, that's the thing to celebrate, and we celebrate that weekly. But Paul says this to the church uh, in 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you. Just got to be a kind of a blow to the church uh, to be like, here's what I don't, here's what I think you're doing really wrong. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in a part, for there must be factions among you in order for those who are genuine among you may not be, be, may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with your own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. And what the church was having happen, I think the Roman system of stratification and, and, and division was seeping into the Lord's Supper. The very meal that would be coming together to say we all are one. Not only are we reconciled with the fire, we are reconciled to each other. That meal was becoming much more like a Roman feast than it was what God had created. Where the wealthy got the best, the poor would go home hungry. It's the very meal that communicates that God is reconciling us to him and us to each other. And not only that, they would eat the Roman meal, but, but, but often at the tail end of the Roman celebration, they would drink a bunch of... Um, they would just drink a bunch. And uh, the first part of that ceremony would be to take this cup and to pour it out, and then they would all have all sorts of festivities. And the best wine went to the wealthy, and the worst went to those, like vinegar wine would go to those who were poor. And we find in the early church the, the opposite often. Obviously, Corinth is struggling, but what the church said is, no, 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 there's one loaf, there's one bread, and there's one cup, and we all share from it. I mean, Paul will say that very thing in his text. Like, Paul has already made the, the transition to this whole metaphor of the body. And, and so when Paul writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and, bread, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, Christians have, uh, through, through plenty of history have certainly interpreted this, that the, the discerning of the body is discerning of, of the bread, that we would consider Christ and sacrifice and, and what Christ did and, and sort of the, the theological implications of this table. Now, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing, but in the context of this letter, I don't think that's actually what Paul is saying. Because Paul's already made this transition in the metaphor here. By, by uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he's already saying, because there was one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. And he will spend this cha chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 talking about the unity of the body itself and use the metaphor for the church the whole time. So when Paul says, hey, you need to discern the body, I would argue that Paul's actually saying, you need to think about this. And if you are holding a grudge against your brother, you, if you partake in communion, like there's, there's judgment related to that. And if you're taking people to, to, to the court, which I don't know if that's happening here, I haven't heard about that, but if you're taking people to court and you're coming to this table, like that's not okay. And if you're, if you're being divisive, if all these things are happening, if, if you are wealthy and you're kind of doing your own thing and you're leaving out the poor and stuff like that and you're being stratified just like the Roman society and you come to this table, you are communicating the very opposite thing that this table was meant to communicate. And that's what Paul is driving at. That's why he will finish this whole section by saying, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So he starts by saying, uh, I hear that you guys are dividing. You are, there's divisions going on amongst you. And then he will close it by saying, so when you get together, make sure everybody's there when you have it happen. And so I would argue when Paul speaks of, of, of misproper, mis, uh, improperly taking from this table, it is about the unity of the community more than just your individual faith. And Paul wants a community to give a clear testimony to a broken world. Like, gosh, like, I understand there's a long history why we have all the breakdown of, of churches by race, churches by socioeconomic statuses, churches by all these kind of things. And it, and it stinks. <laughs> I mean, I would say a more strong word, but um, I'm just not going to do that. I don't, I don't want to show it back up in three months and get fired. Um, but... <laughs> Like, in some ways, the church right now still often communicates the very opposite of what Paul's fighting for here. The church should be a place where people look on and don't go, yeah, I mean, they're just like the rest of the world. Like, black communities and white communities, and those who are wealthy and middle class kind of have their own world, and those of us who are poor have our own world. That's not, that's not the design of the church. And that the church should be made up of all that so that those who look on go, gosh, there's some spirit going on there. There's something drawing all these people together that we can't explain. Like, these groups of people would not normally hang out. And I understand, there's a long history why black and white churches are kind of the way they are and all that kind of stuff. I understand that. It's complicated. It's not just this one thing. But it's also why we talk about it and why we desire, and why we will fight, and why we even move to, to South Decatur as opposed to doubling down in Decatur proper. Like, you, we can be more homogenous if we wanted to and stay in 
30030. That's not what we wanted. And we, we, we doubled down and said, hey, we're moving to Belvedere Park. It's going to be a, a, a more blended social economic world. It's going to be a more blended racial world. It's going to be all those sort of things. Because we think this matters. And we agree with Paul. He says, when you come together, oh, you guys should look different than the world. Rome has their system with their king and their kingdom. Oh, man. But in our system, neither slave nor free, wealthy or poor, Greek or Jew, man or woman, you should look so different than the world. And when you come to this table, oh, that's one of the things we celebrate. Yes, we celebrate the reconciliation to God the Father. Absolutely. It's essential to the table as well. But we also come together and go, ah, this is a family meal. And you may not be my biological blood, but through Jesus' blood, ah, we are family, brothers and sisters together, and we celebrate this. So let's do that. And here's, um, we'll, we'll go back to sort of our formal liturgy that we've kind of missed uh, the last few weeks. But, but we give thanks to the Father that our Savior, Jesus Christ, before he suffered, he did this memorial, the sacrifice for us. He, he gave it to us as disciples until he comes again. And at his last supper, the Lord took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, the cup of the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, we proclaim our faith in the same way that the church has for many years by stating this, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Let me pray for us. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and this cup may represent to us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. And we pray in the name of Jesus what he taught us to pray by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So you can come forward. Uh, we'll, we'll have time of worship uh, as